There was a question last week about the Creed of Athanasius. And uh, we were going through the Catechism, and it mentioned the other two creeds we're familiar with, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And somebody had asked about the Creed of St. Athanasius. And I said I would do my research and come back to you and report. And this is my report. Uh, It was a creed that was developed in the 4th century. Now that would have been the 300s. It would have probably been developed after the Nicene Creed. And it was not written by uh, Athanasius the Great, who was an Egyptian churchman. If you remember, there were, before there was Islam, there was Christianity all around the Mediterranean, and the great churches were in um, Rome, in Constantinople, uh, in um, Alexandria, um, and um, Antioch. I had to think of it for a minute. Uh, And those were the great churches. And... um, So this creed was not written by Athanasius, who was bishop in Alexandria. But it was written because it would have been what he believed. So it was written after his life, but basically it would have signified everything that he stood for. Now this was at a time when in the church there was raging controversy over the divine nature of Jesus. And there was controversy over the Trinity and how all of that fit together. Uh, there were the biggest, one of the biggest um, heresies was called the Arian heresy, which was largely uh, from Spain and some other areas, central France. And the Arian heresy was that Jesus was created. And he was created after God. And he was not equal to God the Father. But he was divine. Now today we still have basically two churches that broadly believe that. Uh, One are the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the other are the Unitarians. So this uh, creed... Uh, when I read it through, I absolutely know why they wrote it. Um, and, and let me read it to you. Uh, it is in really fine print in my book, but just listen. Uh, if you want to read along, it's on page 864 in the, in the prayer book that's on your, on your table. Whosoever will be saved... Before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Now, that does not mean the Roman Catholic faith. This is a capital C, but it does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. Remember, at the time this was written, there was no separate Roman Church. There was no separate Greek Church in Constantinople. There was not a separate um, Orthodox Church in Antioch. And there was not a separate Coptic church in Egypt. There was one Catholic, which means universal. So it's saying 
that you hold the universal faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep, whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, and the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, and the Holy Ghost uncreate. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. So you get the gist. I won't read the whole thing, but it goes on and on and makes that point about four or five times more. And this was to beat down that heresy, heresies that were occurring around the triune God, around the Trinity. If you ever want to get a priest or a bishop, next time the bishop comes, you can do this too, ask him a question about the Trinity. And within the first two sentences, the priest or the bishop will have, created, will, will have committed a heresy. It's almost impossible for a member of the clergy, deacons too, I'm not going to let Deacon Beth off the hook here. Uh, when we talk about the Trinity, it is so easy to get it wrong. Uh, I, I was teaching a, a, um, a young person's class, and uh, I use this metaphor, and it's the best one, and I'm probably committing a heresy just sharing it with you. But the, the best way I keep to understand it, and it fits right with this creed of St. Athanasius, is if I go into the kitchen and I reach into the freezer and I pull out an ice cube and I go over to the sink and I fill a cup with water and I put a, a, a pot on the stove and bring it to boil, I have, what is the chemical symbol, molecular symbol for water? What is the chemical symbol for ice? What is the chemical symbol for a cup of water? What is the chemical symbol for steam? They're the same. They're the same. Um, and that's the best I can do, and I probably committed a heresy even doing that. So that's the creed of St. Athanasius. Uh, did anybody have a question to go further? If you would like, it is really good reading. Uh, and it goes in that same vein. Um, and the reason we don't say it is it's probably redundant. Redundant and redundant. It was probably written by the Department of Redundancy Department. <laughs> but um, anyway, it, uh, to get back to our prayer book, it is in our historic documents in our uh, 1979 Book of Common Prayer. Samuel Seabury, you remember I was telling you the story about how we smuggled him into Scotland to get consecrated a bishop because the British bishops wouldn't do it. 
And we couldn't call ourselves the Church of England anymore after the Revolution because we were independent now. And the English didn't want to have anything to do with us. They weren't going to help us. But the Scots were glad to rub the British nose in, in it and consecrate our first bishop, Samuel Seabury. Well, Samuel Seabury made a case for the, the creed of St. Athanasius to be in the first book of common prayer in the United States. And he was overruled. And it was not included in the American prayer book until 1979. Uh, it was absent for all that time. They put it back in. And uh, any questions on that? All right. When I was in seminary, uh, I became very friendly with the chief librarian at um, Virginia Theological Seminary, and she allowed me to go with her wearing white gloves and a little hat like I was going into an operating room into their rare books room, which was air-conditioned and, and filtered, and I mean, it was like an operating room. And there was a prayer book about this size, and it was an English book of common prayer, 1662. And while we're talking about the 1662 prayer book, Virginia, would you stand up and show and tell about your little book? This is the great family treasure printed in London in questions from last week that I need to go back and visit? Well, as they pop into your mind, just go, ooh, ooh, Mr. Cotta. <laughs> Does anybody remember that TV show? <laughs> well, let me, let me go back to the sacraments for a minute, and I want to talk about the sacrament of marriage. And if you remember last week, I said that it was largely became a custom of the church to practice uh, the ceremony of marriage probably around the second or third century, and it was largely to stop the trafficking of women, the sale of women into marriage. And the church decided to insert itself, and since Jesus' first miracle was at the uh, wedding in Cana of Galilee, the church readily adopted a right to do it. Um, when my wife and I were married in uh, St. Anselm's Episcopal Church down in the Diocese of Southwest Florida in 1972, um, the wedding ceremony was a little bit different than it is today. Um, I did a wedding just a couple of weeks ago 
and I, you know, have the bride and the groom repeat after me in the name of God, I blank take you blank to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. Okay? And it's basically the same words, man and woman. But in the 1928 prayer book, uh, it is a little bit different. Uh, essentially, the woman uh, gives her troth. In other words, she gives her truth. She gives, she swears her allegiance to her husband uh, in the 1928. Uh, I give thee my troth. Well, the man, we don't give our troth to our wives in the 1928 prayer book or in the 1662 book of common prayer. Uh, Church of England. We plight thee our troth. We just promise. My, that has bugged my wife for 50 years. <laughs> but they got it right when they did the 79 prayer book. Was there a question? What was it? Pl plight. Plight. Plight, and that means? A pledge. Oh, okay. A promise. Okay. Now also, it was the custom of the church to publish bans of marriage, which we don't do anymore. And again, keeping in mind why the church got in the marriage business in the first place um, was because of trafficking of women that were being sold into marriage, into wedlock. And there was the priest would have to stand up and he says, I publish the bans of marriage between blank blank and blank blank if any of you no just cause why they should not be joined in holy matrimony. You are bidden to declare it. This is the first, second, or third time. And those had to be read over a period of time, typically about three months, so that it's not just at the ceremony that you have to worry about somebody standing up, but you got three months of people could stand up in the church and object to your getting married. So, uh, anyway... Grounds for them to do that at that time, if they objected. What, what was what were the grounds for somebody to stand up and object? I have never had it happen to me, so I don't know. I had one priest that I knew who said it happened, and uh, he took the person into the sacristy and talked with them for a few minutes, determined that it was not just, and came back out and married the couple. But I, I don't know the reason why he didn't share with me the reason. I guess she's already married, or uh, I don't know. But I mean, it's a tradition. Okay, um, we talked briefly about the reconciliation of the penitent, and I want to just touch on that again. There are three ways in our way of belief to ask God to forgive us. We can get on our knees at home and pray and ask God to forgive us, and He forgives us. We can come together in common worship and we can ask Him to forgive us, and He does. And if we have a hard time with that, we can go to a priest and the priest can coach us through accepting that forgiveness, and we are forgiven. 
And, you know, when, when I stand up or Father Joe stands up and we say the absolution, that's not our absolution, that's God's. We're just reminding you of God's promise. Any questions about reconciliation of the penitent? Okay, the next sacrament I just wanted to revisit for a moment is the administration to the sick. Uh, and we talked about last week unction, and I probably did not do it enough justice. Uh, this unction is one of the sacramental signs of the church. It's the anointing by oil, and um, it is spiritual antibiotic. Think about that for a minute. Spiritual antibiotic. It is not magic. And um, let me read to you the prayer to bless the oil with which someone is anointed. And this is on page 455 in the Book of Common Prayer. And, yes? No, I was going to ask the, 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 the patient. 455. And I carry my oil in a little stock with a little lid on it. When I go to the hospital, I'll ask somebody if they want to be anointed. And if they don't, I don't. If they do, I do. And typically the prayer I use is... Um, and I'm, did I say this last week, the prayer? Did I, I say? So. You don't think so? I wasn't here to tell us anyway. Yeah, I will take a little oil. I have cotton with the oil in it so it doesn't spill out and make a big spot in my pocket. <laughs> uh, I'll take the oil and I'll, I'll put it on. And anybody in the room, I'll ask to lay their hands on as well. And I will make the sign of the cross on their forehead with the oil. And I will say, as you are outwardly anointed with this oil, may you be filled with, our, with, with the Holy Spirit. And may that Spirit bring to you, depending on what the person is in the hospital for or sick for, I will basically uh, make the prayer toward that individual person's needs. And sometimes it's just to be made whole in spirit. It doesn't have to be a physical illness. So anyway... Um, It is. Repeat the question. The, the question is, is, is there a significance of the type of oil? It is not castor oil. It is not uh, motor oil. Motor oil. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's olive oil. It's olive oil. Oh, it's just in its Yeah, that, that's the difference. And this is the prayer of blessing. And whenever possible, I try to say this. Um, at my previous parish, we actually had a healing service um, in the middle of the week. And I would always bless new oil because I wanted people to hear, hear this prayer of blessing because it helps to the understanding of what's going on with the administration of the sacrament. Okay, By hearing the, the prayer of blessing, they understand what it is that's being done to and with them. Let me read it, and maybe you'll, you'll understand. O Lord, Holy Father, giver of health and salvation. This is on page 455. O Lord, Holy Father, giver of health and salvation, send your Holy Spirit to sanctify this oil 
that as your holy apostles anointed many that were sick and healed them, so may those who in faith and repentance receive this holy unction be made whole through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So, that is a little bit more of unction. Any questions about unction? Who can administer it? Who can administer unction? Uh, typically, it is done by bishops, by priests, and by um, deacons. Uh, though, with permission, that can be extended to trained um, home visitors. Uh, that is at the discretion of the diocesan bishop and the priest uh, in charge of the parish. Again, it's not magic. It is, um, it is uh, spiritual antibiotic. <laughs> yes? When you say you use the word magic there, <clears throat> that's one of the things. Do the Roman Catholics feel that they, they I mean, that they perform magic on things? I mean, do they feel that? No, no. The, the question is, does the Roman church feel that they have some special ability uh, or magical ability to do these sacraments? No, they're, they're virtually the same as we are. Yeah. Okay, any other questions about unction? Still praying for the Lord's will in the situation. Absolutely. You know, it's, yes. it's a ceremonial thing, paying paying respect to the one who's suffering, and and asking for the Lord's will. Of course, we want we always know what we want. We want healing. <laughs> so I don't think there's anything wrong with asking for it, but as long as we know well, this is not going to make it. The the observation was that. Um, we are praying for God's will to be done. I try not to use those words um, because I don't want it to be interpreted that God's making a conscious decision for somebody to not get well. Because Scripture also tells us that God does not willingly afflict His children. Um, I would rather put it to the, to the effect that as I pray, I am praying... Uh, for them to be made whole, uh, for them to be healed. And that doesn't necessarily mean healed of their physical. Uh, because, I mean, we're at a point uh, sometimes when we are at the end of what our physical body can do. And, and I want them to be healed in their spirit. But see, that's not my decision. That's God's decision. He may heal them in spirit, but it's time for them to leave this, this orb. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. I want to move on to ministration at the time of death. This is on page 462. Now, we differ from the Roman church here a little bit um, because this would be typically what would be called last rites. And it is a, done a little bit differently. We are encouraged to have the family participate. And this is actually a litany that we go through 
with the family present and the person who is dying. They may or may not be conscious. And it is some of the most beautiful prayers. I'm not going to go through it all, but I commend it to your reading. Um, and it is, it is powerful. And if the person dies while you're there or within moments, you can actually commend the soul to Almighty God, uh, depending on the circumstances. Now, go and read it. It is beautiful. But keep in mind that you can have this as many times as you need. <laughs> and if you get better, thanks be to God. And next time you get sick and you call a priest and you, and you want last rites in the Church of England or in the Episcopal Church, we can do it again because it is beautiful and it's okay. And that's God's will. Any questions about ministration at the time of death? I don't know the answer to that. The question is, can the Catholics do it more than once? I, I don't know. Yes? Yes? Yep. Yep. But it's beautiful. I would commend it to your reading. Uh, one of the non-sacramental rites that we have is the order of burial. Uh, you do not have to be a clergy member to uh, read this rite. Um, and I would also, you know, just when you don't have anything else to do, when your football team loses this afternoon in Tennessee... <laughs> So you can go and read this. Um, <laughs> was that bad? I'm sorry. If you would turn over to page 507, some of the most beautiful words that I've ever read and most meaningful to me are on this page 507. And it is, it is entitled, A Note. When you get to that page, 507. And it is a note about this liturgy. I always had this printed on the back page of the funeral bulletin for people to look at. They would see it. It would be obvious. The liturgy of the dead is an Easter liturgy. It finds its meaning in the resurrection. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we too shall be raised. The liturgy, therefore, is characterized by joy in the certainty that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This joy, however, does not make human grief unchristian. The very love that we share for each other in Christ brings deep sorrow when we are parted by death. Jesus himself wept at the grave of his friend. So while we rejoice that one we love has entered into the nearer presence of our Lord, we sorrow in sympathy with those who mourn. I have never seen a, a, 
a more concise and accurate description of what a Christian burial or funeral should be. And I mean, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Again, I would point out to you, this is just another example of the Bible, particularly St. Paul, plagiarizing our prayer book. <laughs> Going on the ticker. <laughs> uh, okay, any questions about the burial? Uh, read all the, you When you get a chance, just pick it up and, and read one of the short services or or sections I mean there's just some beautiful stuff in here that that will not only will you use in worship but it will help you expand your faith in what you believe and share with your brothers and sisters in our church now if you go to um, the page immediately before 510 it's not numbered, but it would be 509. <laughs> it's a title page. It says Episcopal Services. What might that possibly mean? We're all Episcopalians. No. That means these are services that are led by the bishop uh, as opposed to a priest or a deacon or a lay person in, the, in, in terms of uh, morning or evening prayer. And they are, uh, first in our prayer book is the ordination of a bishop. And it goes through, and hopefully in the very, very near future, I, haven't, I don't remember the date, but it's one already established, isn't it, Joe? I caught you with your mouth full. For the ordination of uh, our bishop, cojuder elect uh, And... and this will be the service that will be used. Um, so this would be one you could start reading and, and understanding. And there's an examination that is done orally. And again, there is always that question, uh, does anybody here know reason why this should not occur? And that happens, you know, throughout at, at weddings, at ordinations for, for bishops, for priests, for deacons. Uh, that question is asked. Um, if you flip over to page 525, you'll see a very similar ordination, not quite as elaborate for priest. Uh, the um, let me read just a couple of lines. I'm, I'm on page 526. The bishop asks the ordinan, that's the person who is going to be ordained, will you be loyal to the doctrine, discipline, and worship of Christ as this church has received them? And will you, in accordance with the canons of this church, obey your bishop and other ministers who may have authority over you and your work? And then a very complicated answer. I am willing and ready to do so. And I solemnly declare that I do believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and to contain all things necessary to salvation. And I do solemnly engage to conform to the doctrine and discipline and worship of the Episcopal Church. 
Every priest who is ordained says those exact same words. So you're pledging before God that you're going to do that. And if you flip over to the 39 articles, don't do it, but, but just when you get a chance, there's also a section on the 39 articles about taking oaths. Covers everything, almost. May I ask you a yes. You take the, say you take this pledge, and there are changes in church doctrine. How do they? How do you address that? Do you still? Are you still maintaining this, or do you have any right to protest those new doctrines or things that come up? I will tell you. As uh, the question is, uh, as doctrine changes. Um, and you've already been ordained, do you have a right to ignore them? Or, or yeah. yeah. Well, I will give you George Hinchliffe's answer. Uh, every person is going to have to search, every clergy person is going to have to search their own conscience. Um, I took a pledge uh, to be obedient to my bishop and the doctrine of Christ as received by the church. So when the synods of the church meet and they make changes, that's also receiving God's divine inspiration. We have to believe that the Holy Spirit is in the midst of what's going on, whether it be a parish meeting, which this parish will have sometime in early February, early February. The Holy Spirit's going to be in the room with y'all, with us and is going to guide us, and we have to trust in that. Um, now, some people will, some clergy will say, no, I didn't sign on for that. And uh, when I was a boy, my father said, you know, if you can't look somebody in the eye and be honest and truthful, uh, some employer that you're working for, and you can't uh, do their bidding as they direct you honestly, then you need to leave that job. And uh, that's just George Hinchliffe. So, I don't think there's an easy out there. Some people do. But I can only speak for, for George. I do know of one situation when we changed over back in, what was it, 2007, where a priest was not going to go to the new lectionary but over a short period of time, uh, it became an issue for the bishop to intercede on that and yeah. end up going back to uh, going on to the 2007 election. Okay, the, the, uh, the comment was that uh, back in the early 2000s that uh, one uh, local clergy person uh, did not want to move to the new revised standard, uh, revised common lectionary, and uh, wanted to stick with the old lectionary. And uh, finally it became an issue with the bishop, and they did. Yeah, did, did do it. Okay. Uh, what she's referring to is we have a new book called the Revised Common Lectionary that several churches have adopted. I think the Lutherans have adopted it. Uh, some of the Methodists have adopted it. The Episcopal Church and, and others. Um, folks, there's not a whole lot of difference between the Revised Standard, 
a revised common lectionary, and the lectionary that was in my prayer book, which was published before that. Uh, and like 90, I would bet 90 plus percent of the time, the Episcopal lectionary, the revised common lectionary, is also the same lectionary used in the Roman church. I mean, it's, it's not a big, big difference. I mean, it's small. <coughs> Any other questions? Yes? So, so the lectionary is just the scriptures? It, what is the lectionary? Okay, the, the lectionary, and there are really two. The question is, what is the lectionary? The lectionary, in theory, if you go into any Anglican or Episcopal church in the world this Sunday, you will hear the same readings that you heard here. And you'll hear the same collect. And Episcopal priests and deacons who preach don't get the opportunity to choose our own verses that we want to preach on, like some Protestant groups do. Um, we have to... And, and the Eucharistic lectionary is a three-year period. A, B, and C. We're entering A. The primary gospel is the gospel of Matthew. In year B, it is Mark. And in year C, it is Luke. And the way I look at the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Basically... Um, they tell God's salvation story. And they tell it each in a different way to slightly different audience. And so we get God's salvation story over a three-year period. We will have read most of the Bible. Not every word. There are some obvious omissions, uh, like the killing of the innocents when Jesus fled, when Herod was chasing him, and he fled to Egypt. And all of the children under two years old were killed by Herod. Um, and that's where, why Mary and Joseph picked up and moved to Egypt. That's not in the lectionary, which I think is a sad. I always preach on that because it's the obvious omission. The, the, uh, uh, anyway. That is, now, um, so you have Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke tell us the story. Gospel of John is sprinkled in in each of the three years. And the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us the story, and John tells us what that story means. John tells us the theology, what to make of it, and how to apply it to what we've learned. Um, it's just like, uh, how many teachers in the room? Oh, a couple of teachers, okay. Well, you know, you go through certain uh, lesson plans with your kids, and then you want to make sure they understand it, so you do something just a little bit different to test them, to see if they understood. Well, that's what the Gospel of John is for, to make sure we got the other three right. Okay? Yes, but it depends on when the prayer book was published. <laughs> so you need to check the date. Uh, if it was after uh, 2010, you're good. If it's before 2010, go to the other book. Four minutes I've got. Okay. Uh, let's see. 
Also in the book is a celebration of new ministry. When Father Joe came here back in 2015, the bishop came and the wardens of the church uh, came forward and gave Joe certain things like a key, a prayer book, and other things. Uh, and the, the bishop would install Joe as the rector here on that date in 2015. I don't know whether it was 2015 or 16, what the date was. Do you remember? It came here 2015, but that service was 2016. 2016. Um, and it's a beautiful service, powerful. Um, there are also consecration of the church in here. Um, and what I'm going to talk about next week, and there is a great section on prayers, uh, beginning on page 810. Almost a prayer for anything that you can imagine. Now remember, as Episcopalians, we read our prayers not because we're lazy. Not because we just want to be rote in the way we do it. But we do it so that we get our theology right. Because it's very dangerous to pray extemporaneously. Sometimes you say things that are heretical and don't match the Scripture. And you get carried away. But that's why we read. Okay, next week. Am I, I got a minute left? I got a minute left. <laughs> next week, what I'd like to do, this is the last week, I want to go through the Eucharistic prayer and talk about the major sections of the Eucharistic prayer, how they came to be, why we still do those things, and what they mean. Yes, Josh. For next week also, could you maybe like at the beginning just expound on what you just said about the heretical or superaneous prayer? Okay. Talk a few more minutes about that. Just kind of curious. I know we're the point of today. Okay. And we're out of time? We're out of time. Tell me when you get mugs. Oh, you need to, you need, you absolutely have to, these mugs fit your hands so well. And Elaine would be glad to fix you up. I know there's a couple of people in here who have already asked about them, so I've got some in here for you.